You are listening to the sermon podcast of Nielsville Presbyterian Church, a Christ-centered church in Germantown, Maryland. To learn more about Nielsville, visit us online at nielsville.org. Good to see everyone here this hot day. You guys surviving the heat? Barely. I <laughs> know. It's the humidity that gets to me. But anyway. Uh, we, get a, we get a new series, and we're going back to the Old Testament. We're going to look at the book of Esther. Now, the story of Esther in the book of Esther is a story of par excellence. Think about it. It has a virtually all the ingredients that people throughout the ages have loved in a story. A beautiful and courageous heroine. A romantic love thread. A disastrous threat to the good characters a thoroughly evil villain, suspense, dramatic irony, sudden reversal of fortune, poetic justice, and a happy ending. The specific type of story presented by the book of Esther is known as a hero story, as the action is constructed around the engaging central figure of a heroine whose Persian name, Esther, means star. But the story, probably more importantly, has a covenantal, redemptive story, a rescue story in which of of all of God's people are delivered from destruction, the U-shaped descent into potential tragedy, and the ascent to a happy ending, believe it or not, is a plot pattern known as a comedy. As we see Esther unfold, this heroine is a developing character. Not a character who always displays admirable qualities right from the start. In her early days in the harem, she fits right in with the other women and, 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 and was part of a, a year-long process of beautifying herself. She wasn't even known as a religious person when she first started. In fact, she has two names, hitting at the identity crisis that she undergoes when she rises to the highest level of Persian society. But Esther does become heroic when she is transformed by this ordeal of needing to save her people, God's people. Finally, this book is a satire, the exposure of vice and folly. And that is specifically focused on the character of Haman, who is both narcissistic and vengeful. So with all that good stuff, I'm going to have Andy read the first chapter as we begin our journey in Esther and grow in the grace of the gospel. So uh, like Pastor just said, the scripture for today is Esther chapter 1, so you can follow along on the screens, or it's on page 410 in those pew Bibles if you want to follow along, page 410. So this is Esther chapter 1. Now in the days of Ahuseris, the Ahuseris who reigned from India to Ethiopia over the 127 provinces... In those days when King Ahuserus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him, while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa the citadel, both great and small, a feast, lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple, 
to silver rods and marble pillars, and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahuseris. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mahuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, and Abigtha, Zethar, and Carcas, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahuseris, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown, in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command, delivered by the eunuchs. At this the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in the law and judgment, the men next to him being Karshena, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Marys, Marsena, and Memukan, the seven princes of Persia and Media, who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti, because she has not performed the command of the king Ahuseris delivered by the eunuchs? Then Memukan said in the presence of the king and the officials, Not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all officials and all peoples who are in the provinces of King Ahuseris. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, King Huseris commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media, who have heard the king of the queen's behavior, will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it may not be repealed, that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahuseris. And let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Memukan proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language that every man may be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now you know why I asked Andy to read it with all those hard words. <laughs> Thanks, Andy. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, again, we gather around your word. There's a lot going on in this passage. And um, so, Lord, we pray that you would guide us in this time. Lord, give us ears to hear, hearts to respond. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And in Dugan's commentary, he compares the story of Esther with the fiddler on the roof. He says this, Imagine living life in a hostile world while trying to perform a difficult task. This is a metaphor that dominates the classic play and film, The Fiddler on the Roof. I'm trying to put too many syllables on there. The main character, the Russian Jew, Teve explains life in these terms. 
A fiddler on the roof, fiddler on the roof, sounds crazy, no? Oh, I can't get out of my mind. But here in our little village of Enochavec, you might be you might say every one of us is a fiddler on the roof, trying to scratch out a pleasant, simple time without breaking his neck. It isn't easy. You may ask why we stay up if it's so dangerous. Well, we say because this town is our home. And how do we keep our balance? Then I tell you in one word, tradition. And I will not sing that. The commentator goes on and says, the image of the fiddler on the roof applies to the Jews in Persia in Esther's time, just as it did in the early 20th century Russian Jews. They were not like those who lived around them. They, they knew that their government officials could cause much harm and could not be trusted. You see, the Persians held all the power in their hands, and the Jews had none. Even though these Jewish people were born in Persia in Esther's time, they were exiles far from their homeland, surrounded by strangers. Their property could be taken or their life ended at any moment of time based on the government leaders. Happens a lot in our world today of nations doing the same thing. On the other hand, if fortune fell on them, they might survive to a good old age and make a good living. As Chavez puts it, it isn't easy, but it's our home. In such hard life situations, why would the Jewish people take the risk of living a distinctive lifestyle in the time of Esther? Why not give to up, give in to the empire's demands and allow themselves to be assimilated and become invisible, just blend in? See, the story of the fiddler on the roof in Esther reminds us that living under the authority of the powers of this world can be troublesome and confusing. In America, we normally do not face direct persecution based on our faith in Christ, as other Christians do in the world. However, we too are strangers in this land we, call, we are called to live. We are citizens, yet we are, not, we are subject to a different king with loyalties and allegiances different from our neighbors. In a pluralistic society, we too face struggles to submit to our primary king, Jesus. And in a culture where those who stand for the gospel are regularly finding themselves getting hammered. But if we're honest, we too struggle with the invisibility of God. I mean, Esther never mentions God in the story. But yet God works throughout history, and we have seen him work out history in, from the Old Testament to the New Testament, from the parting of the Red Sea to Jesus being raised from the dead, but yet he doesn't seem to exercise that same visible presence today in our experiences. That we struggle with the invisibility of God. We too struggle with the goals and dreams that we had, that we had in our lives that had been trampled foot by circumstances or our relationships, even though they were good and godly dreams that God could have easily have provided. Treve dreamed of being a rich man, right? And wonder what cosmic scheme of God's would have been ruined if he had, had been given that kind of life. Perhaps as we honestly think about that, all that we ever wanted, though, was to be happily married or have children or children to turn out a particular way, and it didn't happen. Or we applied to a college of our dreams, but we, got our, we had to settle for our second or third choice. Or perhaps to see your closest friend come to Christ, 
or to get the job you feel that God is giving you to use your gifts, but it never happened. Or someone in your life died at a uncertain age, or at a young age, unexpectedly. And we cry out to God, and there's no response. God remains hidden. See, we experience the same thing Treve and the believers in Esther's experience, struggling to live faithfully in a world. It isn't easy, Treve said, but it's home. See, we live between two kingdoms, the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of God. And as we live as citizens of the kingdom of God, we also live as citizens of this world. And we too struggle on how to navigate in that, in that in our lives. And so often as we evaluate in our own lives, we often respond in either assimilating into the culture of the day or we're filled with despair. We assimilate because it's too hard to make any difference or we're just too lazy or could care less about influencing others with the good news of the gospel. Or we're filled with despair because we see how evil the world is and we conclude there's no way that one person or people can challenge it in effective ways. Paraphrasing Victor Hugo, we have no purpose, so we feel broken down. We have no purpose, so you feel broken down. So as we live in the reality of these two kingdoms, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world, we must realize we do have a purpose as God's people, and we can help, and he can help us live out that purpose. And in doing so, in this first chapter, and we're going to have probably two messages on this chapter. Next week we're going to talk about the providence of God, and maybe touch on their view of marriage that you've read in that passage. Um, but today we want to look on the defective pursuits of the kingdom of the, this world, the effective plan of the kingdom of God, and our central responses as believers to live between the two kingdoms. Let's first look at the defective pursuits of the kingdom of God. The story begins by introducing King and the, the, the Persian king who reigned from 486 to 465 BC. He began his reign at the age of 32 years old. He ruled over a large portion of the day. Think of modern Pakistan to the, southern, to the northern Sudan. And when the author mentions reigning over 127 provinces, he may be applying that there was nowhere that the Jewish people could go to hide from the decree of death that would be pronounced against them later in the story. We see it takes place in Susa, which is one of the four capitals from his monarchy. The offense of the Esther story began the third year of the king's reign, and it spanned over 10 years. So this took place around 35 to 45 years old. And we see that the Persians were in conflict with the Greeks. The empire was preparing for the campaign against the Greeks. So in verse 3 to 8 in this passage, the author describes a lavish and expensive banquet the king put on. The purpose of this banquet was to rally support for his military campaign, so he gathered military leaders, princes, governors, and other officials. And you can see they party for how long? 180 days. They drank and they ate, they drank and they ate, they drank and they ate. Think of the animal house multiplied, right? He showed his wealth in that time to impress those leaders that he would, would make good to his promise and reward them if they would follow him and support his military campaign. 
See, this lavish banquet was to show that he was a king to be reckoned with. And then we see how he shows his defective way of dealing with a problem, the problem of the queen. And we see how he misused his power. See, to command his wife to appear all dressed in her royal finery for the enjoyment of a crowd of drunken men was to treat her as a doll, a mere object that existed for the king's pleasure, and to show off his power. See, we see the dark side of placing too much power in the hands of a man whose only thought is for himself. We see his misuse of power as well, that his court was not a safe place to be in, right? If anything would tick him off, you were in danger of death itself. It's interesting as as we see his response, right? As he responds to his queen, it's one out of fear, right? In verse 12 it says, The king it was enraged, and his anger burned within. See, when the queen said, No, I'm not going to do that, good for her, we see more of his tyrannical character. He was embarrassed by her defiance. And instead of making a personal matter between him and her, he makes it a political and societal matter, punishing not only her, but all women. See, his first response as he sees the queen do this, he goes to his quote-unquote wise advisors. What should he do? Well, the good old network, right, says, how dare she do this? This is not only has ramifications for you, but for all of us. All men are in danger because of this woman who disobeyed the king's order. See, the, the, these men were in fear due to the king's refusal. All men were embarrassed if this goes unchecked by the king. So they decide together this harsh law. But the funny thing is that the exact thing that they wanted to avoid, they actually did. Where it could have been settled between husband and wife, now the whole empire knows that the king can't, quote-unquote, control his wife. See, a leader, a leader gripped with fear and self-importance, not getting the respect he thought deserves, rules in abusive ways. Now, we have seen throughout history, leaders displaying the splendor of their wealth and abusive power. We think of Adolf Hitler and the massive and abusive display of power he brought among the Jewish people. We think of the May Day celebrations in Moscow where the military might of the former Soviet Union was paraded through Red Square against the Jewish people and Christians. We think of the Tiananmen Square in China where the empire displayed crushing military power against student protesters and democracy. Think of Mussolini, we think of Hussein, we think of Noruega in Panama, we think of Pol Pot in Cambodia, we think of the North Korea leader, where they deprive people of food and were willing to kill millions and millions of people over their abuse of power and laws made out of fear. But we don't have to just go to other countries. We can think of, even in our own country, the abusive use of power of U.S. presidents, of both parties, of big businesses, of labor unions. Let's not forget about the very real abuse of power in the life of the church, where many spiritual leaders, both 
in the Protestant and Catholic churches lead in powerful, destructive ways. The Bible itself is full examples of leaders who were not worthy of the power they held. And even in our own lives, the temptation as parents or spouses to use our authority in abusive, evil ways. See, what the authors are trying to point to is that there's another way. They did not know it fully, but we do now know it fully, that only in Jesus Christ do we see the use of power in glorious ways. Only a king with a perfect character is worthy of absolute power. Only a perfect king can wield power with truth and justice. See, God, the internal king, both, both all-powerful and holy, is the ultimate author of this book of Esther, who alone can justly expose the fatal flaws, flaws of the greatest leaders because only he yields absolute power with moral perfections. The New Testament teaches that Jesus, the Son of God, incarnate as the Son of Man, has been what? Crowned King of Kings. We sang about it this morning. Prince of Peace, King of Kings. And he's been given dominion over all worldly powers. See, in the Gospels, we read that, in, that it is Satan who empowers the kingdom of this world with their splendor. And he even tempted Jesus to use his power and for personal ends. Listen to what it says in Mark chapter 4, 8 and 10. Again, the devil took him in a high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of this world and their splendor. He, Satan said, all this I will give you if you will follow me and bow down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, away from me, for it is written... Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. See, Jesus' rule is so vastly different than the way the world leaders yield their power for their own satisfaction of personal lust. Jesus was a servant leader and constantly reminded their power-hungry disciples of that truth. He came not, what, not, to, to, not to serve, but what? To serve and to what? To give his life as a ransom for many. This king in the book of Esther did not do that. At all. One commentator says this the king of kings condemned the type of leadership amplified in the king courts and by the countless kings and presidents and world leaders since. As a backdrop for the story of the salvation of God's pe people in the Persian period, the author of the book of Esther provides an example of the type of worldly leadership Jesus condemns. The rulers of the Gentiles were indeed lording it over the people of the, their empire and exercising their authority to demand a respect that they feared would not otherwise be forthcoming. In stark contrast, the leadership of Jesus was motivated not by his own personal fears and anxieties, but by the needs of those he governs as a king of the universe. See, Jesus was about the needs of us as he governs us in holy, righteous, and gracious ways. Friends, ultimately, Jesus showed this kind of leadership when he went to the cross for you and for me. See, he deserves our allegiance, not because he demands it, not because he needs it. He deserves it because he's the only one who has truly loved us and knows what's best for us. See, to be in Christ and ruled by Christ is, beyond, is to be on the winning side of history. We are, to be, we are to be victors in the face of life's greatest threats. Which brings us to the effective plan of the kingdom of God. 
kingdom of God. See, God works behind the scenes on our behalf. See, the authors, hear this, the authors of the book of Esther knew when he began to write the story that, his, that he was telling a story about how, against all, all odds, the fate of God's people were reversed and became the reason for the celebration called Purim, which we'll talk about later on in our series. See, one seemingly insignificant event led to another, and in the mystery, mysterious chains of, of human actions, the promise of the covenant made long before between God and his people were upheld and fulfilled. So why do I say that? How do we see that? Let's first look at the lavish banquet. See, the original readers would have known that the king returned from Greece four years later, defeated and depleted from his royal wealth. So when they're reading this, they knew the outcome. They knew the end of the story. So the author of Esther wrote long years after his defeat, and the author could have introduced the king as the Persian king who lost a famous battle to the Greeks. Instead, the author chooses to introduce him in the splendor and optimism of his glory days. Why? One commentary explains the elaborate description of the palace found in this story parallels the description of the tabernacle in Exodus, 30, Exodus 25 and through 28 in the description of the temple in 1 Kings and 2 Chronicles. See, the Lord there promised, if the king of Jerusalem walked before him in obedience, you shall never fail to have a man on the throne of Israel. But we know throughout biblical history that that didn't happen. And as a result, they were exiled and ruled by pagan kings. So when you read Esther 1 through 8, in light of the king's defeat, the description of splendor of his palace in Susa while he prepared for war foreshadows his reversal of fortune. This is what Karen Job says in her commentary. The Jews also had previously experienced a humiliating reversal of fortune that has, that has brought them into Susa. Nonetheless, nevertheless, because of the covenant God had made with them when he brought their fathers out of Egypt, the ultimate destiny of God's people were secured. Despite the great power and wealth of the Persian Empire, it could never frustrate, listen, it could never frustrate the promise and plan of God. Though God chastised his people in affliction and the exile, it was never his intent to destroy them completely. Because the Jewish nation was delivered from genocide, it survived to hear, to bear the Messiah through whom all nations have been blessed. See, the promised Messiah fulfilled all the demands and promises of the covenant God made with his people at Sinai. See, he's the man that was promised about this ruler to be seated on the throne of his father David, ruling over eternal dynasty. See, what I'm trying to get at, that God is working behind the scenes. Even though he might not be mentioned in the story, he is working. He's trying to encourage the people with a story that the king does not have the final say. There's another king, the true king, who does. And the second way that we see that God is at work is in the king's request and the queen's refusal. Now, what's interesting is that the author does not begin the story with Esther and Mordecai, but it begins with the king and the queen. And he does not retell the history of the Jews, but begins the story with people who neither knew God or could care about God or even worship God. But God 
but the king gives a banquet for purely political reasons to gain support of his military companion, which showed his fulfilling, wanting to be of one of self-importance. But on the last day of the banquet, he decides to treat the men of his empire to this beautiful queen. And as I already mentioned, his decision was not, like, was not made under the most purest motives. But with his decision to show off his wife as a trophy, he set in motion a chain of events that takes its own life of its own. The queen, also not a worshiper of God, says no way and fuses the kings to obey the king's command. Now, you wonder what she was thinking and if that she realized that her decision was going to do what was going to happen. We do not know, but I like what, what um, Karen Job says. She says, with his one decision to display the queen as the war council, the king sets in motion a chain of events that accumulates in the deliverance of God's people, fulfilling the promise of the ancient covenant made ages before in a faraway place. Or maybe bottom line, as Paul Tripp says, you and I actually control very little, little in our lives. But that's the way, but that's the truth of God's sovereign rule over all things is such a comfort. Let me say that again. You and I control very little in our lives, although we think we do, right? But that's why the truth of God's sovereignty, God's sovereign rule over all things is such a comfort. Friends, God is at work. He's at work now. We might look at what's going on in our, even our own nation and wonder what in the world is going on. What is God doing? How can he use what's happening in our, even in our nation in a way that's going to be good? Right? We are living in this long stretch of God's redemptive history between the, the ascension and return of Christ. And like the kings of long ago, the modern kings and presidents and rulers unwittingly make decisions that have long-reaching consequences far beyond what we have foreseen. These events may be completely secular and perhaps made by people who give Christ no thought at all. Nonetheless, nonetheless, God moves all history forward to accomplish all that must happen before the return of his son, Jesus Christ, the true King of Kings. The defective plans of this world, the effective plan of the God, the King of Kings. What should be our response? What should be our response? First, laugh. Well, what do I mean by laugh? Don't take the power and glory of the leaders of this world too seriously. Learn to laugh at the emptiness of the worldly empire's priorities and edicts. See, the world's power is empty, and friends, it will come to an end. That is what God promises us. The true king rules over all. So laugh. Wait. God is at work doing more than we can imagine. Just because God isn't mentioned in the history book of Esther, or we do not see him working in our government or in our lives, doesn't mean that he's not at work. As he worked behind the scenes in Esther, he works actively in our world, in our own life. He is the director of history and moves our story forward as he did God's people during the time of Esther. 
Right? Why did the king make such a foolish demand in the first place? Why did the queen say no? Who came up with the idea of replacing the queen? See, all these decisions are one entirely level, on one level entirely normal human decisions with no miraculous component. Yet all of them are necessary to make way for the process by which Esther will rise to the position of leadership where she can influence to protect God's people against a powerful enemy. See, at that time, no one knew what God was doing. And much like us, we don't even know or understand what God is doing. He seems hidden and removed and remote. Yet, at the end of the story, yet the end of the story has not been written for this world or for you personally. Wait on him as he completes his purposes for you. And then lastly, trust. Laugh, wait, trust. God has something better for you and me. We have a true and loving king who serves you and I faithfully and graciously. Come to Christ in faith. Rest in his provision of forgiveness and of life. Thank him for the gift of himself for us on the cross. Live according to his edicts to which true wisdom is found. Trust that he's at work as he promised, working through the evil impulses of the empire, of all the government empires, for good in our lives and the lives of all his people. Friends, remember, this is not our home. Yeah, Treve said, it's not easy, but it's our home. Well, literally, this is not our eternal home. We may live as citizens of this world, but this is not our final destination. One day when Jesus returns, our balancing act on the roof, as the fiddlers would do, will be over. And the true banquet will begin. And what a way to celebrate today. The Lord's Supper is a banquet that foresees or makes us look forward to the one banquet we'll have when we'll enter the new heavens and the new earth when Jesus comes again. We have this great honor to partake of this banquet, this meal, this fellowship, where Jesus is at work reminding us that he's not remote, that he's not distant, but he's very present in our lives, wanting us to trust and wait on him, for he's truly good. He is a true servant king leader who loves us deeply. So with that in mind, let us prepare ourselves for this table.